The other thing that I've been impressed with in terms of the opportunity to work with Microsoft, Michelle, is how you're willing to test out new technologies. And then the other part about that is as you test out and then start to deploy these different technologies to meet the goals as you've described, is you know how you're able to scale those. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. If you're here for the first time, I'm Deborah Channel, SED's Head of Content and the host of this podcast. And if you're returning, welcome back, and thanks for listening and being part of our community. In the world of energy and sustainability, Microsoft has long been a leader in setting and sharing their clean energy strategies. At our recent Net Zero Forum, Michelle Lancaster, Microsoft's Global Sustainability Strategy and GTM leader, and Chuck Hanna, Constellation's Vice President, National Accounts and Solution Sales, joined together to give a keynote discussing how Microsoft is working with its energy supply chain with the goal of meeting carbon reduction, as well as energy reliability and security, all while managing costs. It was an inspirational talk that we're excited to share with you today. So here's Michelle and Chuck. So just want to give a quick overview in terms of Constellation. We don't have a lot of time, so we'll just kind of skip and go through some of the highlights just to give a flavor for those that may not be familiar with us. So we are the largest producer of carbon-free energy in the country. We produce about 178 million megawatt hours on an annual basis, which is about roughly 10% of all the carbon-free energy that's generated in the U.S. A lot of that is through our industry-leading nuclear fleet. We have over 20,000 megawatts across the country of nuclear, and we've managed that very well at very high operational levels as well as safety for many years. And we look to continue to grow that both with existing assets as well as new assets that may be out there from a development standpoint that we hope to be involved with from an operational standpoint. In addition to that, we have a very large customer-facing business where we assist customers in terms of supply to their facilities across electricity, natural gas renewables, and other things coming off the grid, as well as many behind-the-meter applications from projects all the way through to matching on an hourly basis, which Michelle and I will touch on in a little bit. So, Michelle, why don't I turn it over to you to give a quick overview in terms of your background and focus, and then we'll get into some of the key discussion points that we want to discuss with the audience. Excellent. Okay, we'll start. Does anybody here not know what Microsoft does? <laughs> okay, good. I've been pleased to see everybody using LinkedIn across the board, so keep it up. But I lead our go-to-market strategy for our commercial sustainability solutions. This job literally did not exist two years ago because we did not have sustainability solutions What Microsoft is doing right now and what we're looking at is how do we take all of that lived experience from setting our first carbon emissions reduction target in 2009 and our data background to really help ourselves and help other customers accelerate across the energy transition and really decarbonization net across the board. We are looking at that from a data-driven lens to really help customers and organizations think about how to better integrate, automate, and ingest data that they have to make better decisions now and continue to drive the business forward. So we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like, but I promise no heavy-duty Microsoft sales pitch. (laughs) Sounds good. Thank you, Michelle. So let's start with sustainability. So by way of background, we've been working closely with Microsoft for some time. We announced a partnership across many fronts, including sustainability, 
And maybe uh, if we start with, we'd like to talk about what are your goals in terms of sustainability? And when you talk about 2024 and beyond, if you could give us some insight there. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we've been in sort of the sustainability business for a long time. We set our first reduction target in 2009. 2012, we set a commitment to become carbon neutral across our operations. So scope one and two in our business airline travel. And then in 2020, we set a series of new commitments really to be carbon negative, water positive, and zero waste across our organization inclusive of scope three by 2030. So those are our big rocks. They're the big rocks we move against every year, just for frame of reference. If you think about what that looks like for Microsoft, we're a little smaller than maybe some of you in the room. IT does have that advantage over energy, but we're looking at about 19 million tons of CO2 across all of those scopes that we have to deal with each year. About 97% of that sits in scope three. As you can imagine, our cloud business is thriving, which is great, but it is a heavy electricity consumer. So for us, as we look towards reaching those goals in 2024, as well as our financial goals, energy is paramount. It's, you know, we say Microsoft runs on trust, but our data center business runs on electricity about 18 million gigawatt or megawatt hours a year, to be precise. And so in 2024, we're looking at really how do we move forward on those renewable energy targets. We purchased about 8 gigawatts last year. We're on pace to do that or more this year, which is great. But meeting those targets doesn't just require us to purchase more energy. We have to do two other sort of things in that space. And so for us, it's really looking at how do we use um, the prowess we've developed in Scope 2 against our scope three targets. It's about 97% of our emissions after we get rid of renewable energy. And we're looking at energy as a big part of that. Most of our supply chain sits in Southeast Asia, low renewable penetration, really tough to move, really hard to access offsets. So we're looking at both policy, technology, and purchasing to move the needle on that front. And the second piece of this is really how do we start to move beyond matching on a ledger basis and matching on an hourly basis. And so that's a concept of 24-7 that we and Google and a couple of other folks share. So it's really how do we kind of start to make that transition from being a really great purchaser of energy into being more of a holistic enabler of grid transition, because we're not going to be able to get there to our targets otherwise. Sounds good. Thank you. And just to uh, add a couple things to what Michelle has described in terms of trying to match carbon-free energy on an hourly basis with your usage in that particular hour, we announced back in June that we had executed a deal with Microsoft for a data center in Virginia to be able to provide that. And it comes from a combination of PPAs from New Build Renewable Resources that Microsoft had contracted for through third-party developers, and then us matching the hours where those resources may not be available with carbon-free resources from our portfolio specific to our nuclear plants. And that's up to 35% of the volumes in each hour. So another key part of that in terms of what we're able to do through our partnership with Microsoft is to build out a platform to be able to provide that tracking in terms of how those resources, the types of resources are matching up and all the reporting. And we're very fortunate to have worked with Microsoft in that. And we've also had some success with other customers who are interested in similar products. And we announced one recently with some other customers in that area. And then, Michelle, you touched on another key area in terms of how all this you know, is managed, so to speak, which is the data side of it. So one of the things we've been very focused on is when we work with customers in terms of building out their sustainability plans, data is a hard lift. And the quality of data is not easy to come by. Since we're a very large supplier of energy, we have access to a lot of billing data you know, as part of what we provide to our customers. And we've been able to work with Microsoft, again, within our partnership to build out 
very robust, high-quality data as part of what you're looking to do when you build out your sustainability platforms and hopefully helping with that heavy lift of trying to get all that data together and put it in a format first to create your baselines, as well as figure out how you may change it to get to your goals. Okay, so let's keep moving along in terms of some of these areas we want to talk about. So reliability and security, obviously, is a key one for all customers. And you know, there's a couple of things that I think a lot of our customers are dealing with, which is a combination of a transformation of what their businesses will look like. Electrification is big in terms of replacing carbon emission type fueled fire processes, vehicles in the transportation space, et cetera, et cetera, with new electric applications. We heard a discussion yesterday around the LA port as an example in terms of what they're doing there. That was very interesting where they said they expected with the transformation and electrification, they would increase electric usage by about a factor of six. And I think by my calculation, it moved from roughly 50 megawatts to 300 megawatts, which is a significant increase. So that's an example. Some of the other things we're seeing out there, obviously, you're growing like mad. Many of the other tech companies are following similar paths in terms of rapid growth, both from a data center standpoint, as well as AI, and then just you know a general movement and increase of U.S. manufacturing across many different industries, whether it's semiconductor chips or just traditional manufacturing that's moving back to the U.S., which is all very exciting. And on top of that, in terms of the supply side, we're seeing increasing challenges in terms of either resource adequacy, availability, or just climate action weather that's causing uh, stress on the system. I think Texas and California are good examples of that. So there's a couple aspects in terms of this, in terms of the the delivery into the facility, as well as what you do or have on site to manage, you know, these high reliability goals that you and other customers have. So how do you figure all that out in a rapidly growing environment with all these challenges? What's kind of the simple, easy path to get there? (laughs) Is there a simple, easy path? Can you tell me? I don't know. I think I felt felt great about this morning until that litany of of challenges there. I'm a little little, little scared now. But I think We've been trying really hard to look at this as a mix of challenges and opportunity. Obviously, from our operational side, our data centers are in business because all of you, again, thank you, are using more data than ever, using more data and compute and storage than ever, and then looking at AI. And so that is all good news for our business, but it creates new challenges for us. As you mentioned, some of that is just growing consumption across the board. Data center companies are facing all sorts of challenges based on our electricity load in places like Ireland, the Netherlands, and then even some of the places that we're going into Southeast Asia. So it's become sort of not just a CapEx issue for us or an OpEx issue to manage, but it's become sort of a a right to operate and a right to site issue. So what we've been trying to do is to really manage what our overall impact is, that's some of our supply-side renewable energy purchases, along with some changes that we run in our operations and then taking advantages of those opportunities. So We talked a little bit about what we're doing on the purchasing side in that middle bucket around sort of challenges and why reliability is so important to us is that we rely in our business as something that we call five nines. And that means that your access to any of your data in any Microsoft data center should be available 99.999, I think I got all five, percent of the time. And that means that we have no tolerance for any latency, any disruption at all. And so we've kind of adopted these I'm going to call them three R's to sort of deal with that reliability issue. The first is redundancy. So every time we go in and build a data center and put up an Azure region, we actually build three and we build them in three different places. So our, for example, our data center region in South Africa, we have one in Johannesburg. We opened that about three weeks before zero day. So we can talk about water along with carbon. That was 
a fun activity. But we also have one in different parts of South Africa that operate on different grid systems with different stresses. And so that sort of redundancy is really helpful for reliability, obviously has a different challenge associated with it because now we're powering three data centers with water consumption across the board. That helps us on the reliability standpoint. The second one of those R's that we look at in reliability has been around what I'm going to call resources. So for every data center that we put in, we also have that commensurate amount of power backed up by first quick start batteries, and then second by generation. For a long time, we have not thought of those as assets. They are backup things. When you know things go down on the grid, we like flip on the batteries and about 30 seconds later, the generators turn on. But we changed the way that we were thinking about those things. They're really expensive, right? Like it is very expensive to buy that much and have them running and never use them. Not a great topic to explain to your CFO why you have to keep purchasing these things and never turn them on. And so we thought, you know, maybe if we do this differently, we think about these as resource side assets rather than backup power, we can do things differently. And so the first thing that meant that if you're going to run generators as a grid side asset, you do not want diesel power pumping out all of those things makes local communities even crankier than they usually are about data center operations. So the first thing that we did in starting to look at those is resources say we're going to be completely out of diesel power generation by 2025. That is kind of a crazy statement because I can tell you on uh, about one hand how many people are making enough fuel for non-diesel power generation right now. If any of you are doing that, come find me afterwards, please. But that is sort of the first thing of like, let's make sure that those are actually zero carbon power gen sets that we have available. The second part of that is our batteries. Those batteries right now are quick start. They're kind of traditional spent lead acid batteries. So not great for the environment, not great for anything else. We've started converting those in our fleet right now to zero carbon or to fuel cells or some alternatives that we've been looking at. And that means that not only are we, you know, getting to green across all of our assets, but they can also become grid side assets. So those quick start batteries are now grid interactive in at least four of our operations, including in the Virginia facility where we look. And so we're now able to not just, you know, protect ourselves in the event of a grid unpredictability. We're able to actually offer that back. So we have software telemetry running alongside. We're tracking the activity on the grid. And when it looks like that they're about to turn on a coal peaker plant in Wyoming or some other places, we're able to actually turn those batteries on as a battery side grid asset. Good for us. We get money out of that. We're able to provide that as a grid side service. It's better for the grid. And it's able, in many cases, for us to change the interrelationship that we have in those. We've also done the opposite in Wyoming. For example, we actually don't use those as a grid side asset when the grid gets taxed in that region. We actually just take ourselves off of the grid and run entirely on our grid sided assets. So backup power, really changing that resourcing model is one of the other ways that we're looking at protecting this and changing our transformation. And the last one, bad Microsoft person, if I don't talk about software, so forgive me. The third one is really around <clears throat> reduction. We talk a lot about that in our data centers and obviously hardware is a big piece of this. But if we can improve the efficiency of how much code it takes for you to get an email and Outlook to run chat GPT to help you get through a memo that maybe you haven't read before a board meeting, which maybe an executive at Microsoft might have admitted to doing. But you know, those things right now, because they're new, they take up a lot of lines of code. You guys probably don't care about that. We care a lot about that. So the more efficient we make the code, the more secure it is. It also means that it uses less carbon. So really looking at this from a holistic software to hardware view. And we've realized that, you know, every step we take in becoming sort of more self-sufficient, if we're not providing that back as a grid asset, either in software solutions like we've done with Cloud for Sustainability on tracking that data or Azure Data Manager for Energy to help energy companies manage that, 
we're only kind of half the way there. For Microsoft to meet our carbon negative goal is what we have to do. But if we do that and nobody follows suits and we don't provide that path, then we've kind of met a a very empty target for ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of variables to manage and optimize all at the same time. So the other thing that I've been impressed with in terms of the opportunity to work with Microsoft, Michelle, is how you're willing to test out new technologies. And then the other part about that is as you test out and then start to deploy these different technologies to meet the goals, as you've described, is you know how you're able to scale those. So we did an interesting deal that was announced earlier this year with Microsoft, where Constellation is the buyer of a to-be-built fusion technology, and that's up in the Washington, state of Washington. And then we're going to provide the output in terms of the attributes, again, to help with beating your carbon-free hourly goals out into the future. So those are some examples of other areas we're doing beyond kind of your traditional new build solar wind structures that we've put together for other customers where we then risk manage those deliveries to a customer retail facility. And then we've been able to work with Microsoft to develop those types of structures around other carbon-free resources that we'll look to roll out as customers become more interested in some of the newer technologies that you're leading the industry on, per se. Another area just that uh, we're very focused on, it was kind of interesting to see a lot of the profiles in terms of the attendees today. I was impressed that it seemed like there was a lot of mention of customers interested in SMRs, small modular reactors. And again, as the largest operator of nuclear assets in the US, I was very encouraged by that. If you go back just a couple of years ago, there was not a lot of interest slash support for nuclear, but you know the industry has transformed change very quickly here in terms of now seeing the benefits of nuclear in terms of its ability to be able to produce the carbon-free energy as well as the very high reliability and the support of the overall operations and grids in the marketplace, so to speak. So one thing that we've also been involved, we have a partnership with Rolls-Royce over in the UK to look at developing SMRs in the UK and potentially other parts of the world. And we see that as an opportunity that is in early stage, but again, been encouraged by the interest in terms of how quickly customers are adapting to focusing on those type technologies beyond the traditional renewable resources that are out there. Yeah. And Chuck, if I could just pick up on that, I think We've seen the same thing. I think I was talking about this before is just that pace of change right now is so high. And I can tell you that from a technology perspective, it seems like it's faster each year. And I think SMRs are a really great example of where that's been. As a data company, we are obsessed with scale and repeatability. That's how we make our money, but that's also how we meet our targets. And as we've been looking at SMRs, I think that's been the other piece. We know so much of this stuff is tied up in the actual engineering piece. I will not pretend to know your business better, so I don't. But we do know from a data standpoint, right now, each one of those SMRs is going to have to go through an individual certification process to mm-hmm. get sort of up and running. Each of these, in terms of repowering coal, has to go through an individual certification process. But if we can standardize what that looks like, in terms of the application, in terms of the delivery, and we're able to both standardize the delivery and really speed up the timeframe around some of that certification. So it's really, I think, you know, it's very easy in the world of corporate procurement that we have sat in to think about these things as contracting, you know, gigawatts at a time. But I think where we're headed is that it's yeah. really an all of the above approach and that purchasing is just one of the levers that we have. And if we hit purchasing too many times, fixing some of the other pieces along a procurement path around the grid integration path, we're actually creating some, we're solving one problem, kind of popping a different problem up at the top. And so I think that the type of these partnerships that we're starting to see through technology companies, energy companies, data companies, and then the purchasers are really the kind of thing that we're going to need to break through. Yeah, that's good. So we touched a little on policy. And as I mentioned, it seems like 
views of policy in terms of types of resources and other parts of policy are quickly evolving. So can you share any insights in terms of how the Microsoft view of policy around energy, sustainability, and other areas has evolved over the recent past and you know, what your outlook for that is for the future? Yeah, I think it's one that comes up all the time. Our new chief sustainability officer, Meli Nakagawa, came over from the White House and in the president of Microsoft's introduction, it was sort of energy is the way that Microsoft is going to get there. And policy is the biggest lever that we have. You know, we can continue to purchase and we will. We keep our procurement team nice and busy, but it's really kind of the concept of floor and ceiling and moving those around correctly. So some of those are how do we continue to make better use of the funds that are available through the Inflation Reduction Act, for example. And so we've worked with a lot of our customers to provide support to their applications as sort of the downstream side of that. We've also been more vocally involved than a lot of other companies in early stage policy pieces. I just spent yesterday talking about 10 companies who are not terribly thrilled with me. So join the list about, um, if you will, on what I'm about to say. Microsoft was one of the lone business voices in supporting the California bill that just passed around requiring ESG reporting. And we did that because we're big believers in data, duh, but also in the power of transparency. And so reporting on those things tends to grow markets. And that's been our philosophy. We spent a lot of time renegotiating some of the portions of that bill, as well as SEC and CSRD on a reporting side. And then on the energy policy specifically, we've also been more heavily engaged than we used to be. I think it really started with our support in an amicus brief with some of our tech friends around the clean power plan when that was in front of the Supreme Court and has kind of moved on from there. I think we used to play this at a very national level Mm -hmm. and we've diversified. Our state government team is super heavily involved in this because we've realized that the U.S. doesn't have one energy policy. We have 50 energy policies and that's on a good day because different parts of those state governments view those things differently across the board. And so one of those things has been both a policy education, outreach. So we spend a lot of time anytime we talk about our business, about why this is good for the region, what we bring in. And then the other piece of that has been where there are places that we need assets that are energy bills that are preventing that. Ohio was a good example. It's incredibly difficult for us to move forward on solar and wind power, the way that the legislation had been written. And so we sent our national energy policy lobbyist into Ohio for about a month into the state assembly. I think they've mostly forgiven me for that opportunity. But that's just sort of the level of example. And I think that all goes back to the ethos that we have is that we have a very large voice. We have a very large balance sheet. Those two things tend to go together. And I think we assumed for a bit of time that people knew that energy was important to us. And we realized we'd been told in like six meetings, like you have to show up for the things that you want and you need to make it much more explicit. So we've been trying to be much more present and much more engaged early on in some of those discussions at both the state and the national level. I think, you know, more support, less red tape, more funds is what we all need to move forward because corporate dollars are there, but corporate dollars are not alone going to get us to where we need to be. Sounds good. And I'd just like to add that uh, we're very appreciative of Microsoft's support for existing nuclear, as we mentioned, with some of the transactions we've been able to put in place with you and also your interest in potentially for new build nuclear as well. So let's move over to cost. So, you know, we talk about a lot of things in terms of how to balance the sustainability, the reliability and security, which obviously are you know very high priorities to all of us out there. But we all have to do that within a budget and cost structure that we can manage to. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's different parts of different companies who are trying to come together to figure out how to balance all those 
and do it on a short-term basis to meet goals as well as longer-term basis, particularly when it comes to these commitments that many of us have made around sustainability. So can you share like how you do all that, both in terms of nearer term as well as longer term? Yeah. I mean, again, I think the answer is really data, but I mean, it really is. I think and we've had to go through sort of three rounds of evolution. I think anybody that's on the procurement side has had to do this. The first time you take a renewable energy contract into your finance team, it doesn't matter how good it looks, they do not understand that, right? Like that is not what a corporate finance team is used to looking at. That is long-term contracting, doesn't return on a quarterly basis, assets settle all sorts of different times. There are market variables they don't understand. I, the first PPA we took in finance called us back about 30 minutes later. They're like, yeah, no. <laughs> the answer is no. We don't need to have a meeting. The answer is no. So there's been a long education on sort of what this looks like before we could even get to the value side of this. And I say this all the time as a sustainability practitioner. Us in sort of sustainability spend way too much time talking about carbon and not enough time talking about dollars. And we need to kind of shift that balance. We need to convert the cost of carbon into dollars. That's what we had to do with the finance team. And that's what we continue to do. So as we look at the financial outlay of purchasing, you know, a power purchase agreement, if we look at what it took to do our data centers differently to convert that battery fleet, I mean, your finance people know this, like that just looks like a big red OPEX number in there. Like, no, thank you. Do not want. So we've had to really shift that into what is sort of the settling. What does that look like? And we've had to do, I think, a lot of work because for a long time, again, I think sustainability folks have relied pretty heavily on brand value and it's that business value. So when we converted the first of those batteries over, we looked at some of those hard to quantify non-financial benefits, but things people certainly understood. The longer we have to fight to install a data center because of community resistance, that has a dollar value. So we started to think, okay, what's the dollar value of an easier to accept, easier to negotiate envelope of a data center because they're not concerned about our electricity and we're able to provide a grid asset. What's the return on investment for those grid asset batteries that we can offer back as a service? What's the long-term benefit that we get from our utility provider in terms of discounts because we're operating them in a different way? And we really sat down to look at like end-to-end. It's not just a purchase versus outside. It's what are all of the values that we get out of that and then start to convert that back to our finance team. And that became a very different conversation because now it's not should I purchase A or B, it's do I make a short-term investment that's going to cost me a lot more money mm-hmm. in the long term? And that's really, I think, the last bit of that has been the emergence of really understanding climate risk and resilience, especially in the context of electricity, has really changed that discussion for us across the board. So yes, it is still a cost issue, but the amount that it would take us to deal with potential customer loss because we don't have a functional data center in ERCOT anymore, our finance people understand those numbers. Got it. And I would just add that we're seeing a lot of what you described, where you have a lot of in-house resources to be able to do that from Microsoft, that not all companies have that. So, you know, we've added resources to our team, you know, who have experience in that area that, you know, are working with the sustainability, the engineering, the operations, and the finance people to help them build those business cases and plans and strategies. Accordingly, in fact, our associate uh, Jeff Blankman who recently joined us from a global food manufacturer, had that role at his company and is now on board with us to assist customers in terms of bringing all that together. And we found a lot of interest in terms of customers needing that to work through their review and approval processes. A couple other things I wanted to touch on in terms of our discussion today, and then we'll open it up for some questions, is going to be around, you know, talked about your sustainability and your go-to-market offerings in that area as I've mentioned a number of times, one of the things that we've been very appreciative of is how Microsoft enables our business across many fronts, whether it's around sustainability in terms of what you're 
looking to procure, whether it's around helping us build out our platforms in terms of how we're better serving our customers, how we're developing new technologies to work with you that we can again deploy to other customers that we may serve. But what are some other areas that you're focused on in terms of your new role in terms of the go-to-market strategy around sustainability? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. I think it kind of comes back to that same topic that we were just talking about in terms of cost and value. As we look across the board, we're, we've got very industry-focused solutions. We've talked a little bit about 24-7 and what that looks like. But what we've realized is that in our own work and then in our discussions with customers, getting to that business value proposition or getting to reduction or getting to transformation, those are sort of the big rocks that everyone wants to get there. But man, I love Excel. I hope you all love Excel. Excel is not a carbon accounting solution. Okay. Like having 70 Excel spreadsheets is a really terrible way to go about trying to manage this for a once a year report. And it is a completely terrible idea to try to do this on anything that looks more like a quarterly business intelligence report. And I think that's what we've seen for us, for everyone else. We were also sort of customer zero for Excel and we are now customer zero for what we've actually built on top of that, which is how do we actually ingest and automate all of that information? So how do we get things like that we already have that are up and running connectors to all sorts of different data sets, pull that together, cleanse it, and then get it to a place where we can actually do those calculations. I will just have no shame in admitting this as the person who put together our first two sustainability reports. We were doing it the same way that everybody else was, right? Like once a year collection of data, a whole bunch of aggregation, three months of calculation. We introduced the joy of working with Deloitte and doing non-financial auditing, which added three more months to that. And that is a great way to do this if this is a brand value. It is a terrible way to do this if it is part of your business. And that is certainly the way that we started to think about this is that, you know, when we announced that carbon negative commitment, Amy Hood, our CFO, was up on stage. And so Amy Hood called us about three months after. That was January. She didn't call us in March because that was 2020. Amy had some concerns about how fast we were scaling teams for COVID in March, but she sure called us in April and said, hey, uh, how are we doing on uh, our carbon negative commitment? Because she's used to seeing things quarterly. We're like, oh, Amy, we'll get back to you in like six months. And that was not an acceptable answer. And that's when we started to think about, you know, how do we have access to that information on a regular basis? How do we get to calculations? How do we start to track baseline? And then where do we start to find those opportunities? So really going from sort of like, do I have a static reporting solution? Do I have a business intelligence platform to really manage my business? And that was sort of our shift from Excel into the solutioning side of things in what we have now in cloud for sustainability. That's what we spend a lot of time on. I think sometimes people are like, oh, would you shut up about reporting? And I get it. Like if we all did this just to report, we would probably all have easier jobs. It's reporting on a pathway to be able to do this with intelligence to get back to those cost decisions and be able to identify, is that pilot project returning in real term? If you're calculating that once a year, there is no way that you're going to be able to figure out any of those problems that you have. You don't understand your data collection problems. There's no way to remediate that unless you have something that looks more sophisticated than a simple Excel sheet. That connector works really well in the product, though, because we understand where you are. And we also don't want everything to be on Microsoft. You guys have all invested a lot of money. This was a conversation we had with Constellation. In building your own systems, we don't need a like 35th ERP in your business unless you really want one. We can <laughs> talk about that, too. But what you really need is the overlay to actually rationalize the, all of the investments that you already have and to be able to pull that together. And so that's what we're focusing on first as that sort of data layer and then working with our customers and partners to start to then add those reduction strategies on top. Because once it's all fused together and we're not looking at pilot projects or silos of data, you can start to see, hey, my investment in carbon-free energy 
in Malaysia was great. That change of the data center was good, but it actually jacked up my water costs because we changed the way the equilibrium works there. You get to see all sorts of things that data geeks like us really enjoy. But you know, if you're really in charge of that for your business, understanding the decisions you make now, the implications they have in the future, and that real-time remediation is kind of stage zero for us yeah. right now. Thank you, Michelle and Chuck, for that great conversation. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. 